This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. When we think of racism, we often think of actions, obstacles, systems. What we often overlook is the power of images, movement, art, and words. They represent a power of both harm and hope. Elizabeth Alexander, in her new book, The Trayvon Generation, uses this prism to share poetry, art, film, and along with her exquisite evocative language, we find ourselves educated, provoked, and challenged. Elizabeth is singularly equipped to tell us these stories. She is a poet. Many were introduced to her when she read her poem, Praise Song for the Day, at President Obama's inauguration. She is a best-selling award-winning author, and it's now the president of the Mellon Foundation, the nation's largest funder in the arts, culture, and humanities. But at her core, she is an educator. Having had that role as chair of African-American studies at her alum, Yale University, in her new book, that is just what she does, Educate Us. And the poet in her delivers the education with lyrical beauty. Elizabeth, it is my honor to welcome you to Just the Right Book. Thank you, Roxanne. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I, I have. I have as well. So let's anchor our conversation with your title. Um, who is the Trayvon generation and what distinguishes them from what might be termed the civil rights generation or the Emmett Till generation or even the Rodney King generation? Well, I, I think you've given us some other important landmarks to understand how we might understand this moment, these young people on a historical timeline. To back it up a little bit with Emmett Till, that uh, murder, racially based murder, was something that we knew about because Emmett Till's mother had the body dredged from the river, brought to Chicago, open casket in church, let the world see what they have done to my child. And then Jet Magazine, as we know, took a photograph that circulated that horror. And many talk about Emmett Till as the sacrificial lamb of the civil rights movement when Rosa Parks was uh, about to inaugurate the Montgomery bus boycott. She said, no, it wasn't that I was tired. I was thinking of Emmett Till. You know, so so the technology that was available then was the photograph uh, and the real life of the church display. And that's how how we understood that moment. Let's move forward, let's say, to the indelible photographic image of, images of the civil rights movement, many including brutal violence against young people that showed folks who were not necessarily in the South, who were not necessarily part of the movement that this was happening. Moving way forward, Rodney King, early technology with video cameras, and George Holliday, the neighbor, filmed this racist police beating of Rodney King through his window, and that 81 seconds was circulated, we didn't have the internet then, on television, and you would watch it. But what's different now is that everyone can take pictures with their phone, everyone can record things with their phone, 
And these images can be circulated and recirculated in absolutely rapid fire time. So this generation of young people is the first one that has grown up with repeated and incessant images of race-based violence and murder. They see these images not while watching the evening news with your family at dinner, but rather on the school bus coming home from school, outside of family, uh, adults, people to talk, people to help you deal with the trauma. They experience their own vicarious vulnerability through this repetition. And I think that when you add to that, that we are at a time in history where if we might have hoped that in the civil rights movement, we were moving inexorably forward to better days. I think what we've seen, and as I say, as the book uh, opens, that the problem remains the color line, that this problem of racism and violence that we hoped we were beginning to solve as we moved through the 60s and the 70s right. is still with us and still with our kids. So two, two things. One is a number of years ago, we um, hosted Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and I had interviewed him and he is definitely the gentle giant and talked about how much the issue of race mattered to him and the work that he was doing. And someone from the audience asked him, what was it that ignited that? And he said when he was eight years old in 1955, it was the Emmett Till photograph and he was, he was eight. And yeah. that, that remained like seared in, in many of our, because uh, I was about the same age it, mm -hmm. as he was then, seared in our brains. Even as little kids, you, we were exposed to it. Well, yes, and actually there, and I've written about this um, in an article that talks about uh, thinking about Black people witnessing violence and trauma at the Rodney King moment, looking back to all of the people, um, uh, Muhammad Ali writes about witnessing it as a young teenager and what a galvanizing moment that is. Uh, Ann Moody in the book Coming of Age in, in Mississippi writes about it. I mean, it, there's, there's really literally uh, a, a literary genre of yeah. people talking uh, about the, the murder of Emmett Till. But I think that we are talking about something that is much more widespread and that in the repetition, yeah. in the inescapability, in the sheer number, I mean, Trayvon Martin, interestingly, was one of the ones that was not videotaped but um, or filmed on the phone, but in its horror of its narration that we had George Zimmerman on the, the tape as he hunted this young person and we heard the scuffle we heard what happened and the iconicity of skittles hoodie mm. arizona tea you know of this absolutely most quotidian of things you know as a, a teenager going to the the store to get a snack uh and and not being able to come home safely the trayvon case 2012 followed by um george zimmerman's acquittal, which acquittal. I think even though we know that the justice system has failed uh, uh, repeatedly in, in, in these cases, I, I still think there was something shocking about yeah. that because it was so, we had him on tape, right? You know, well, like Rittenhouse. I mean, to me, 
those two where, you know, I've had lawyers explain to me why the law was interpreted properly. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, like in Rittenhouse, we learned that even if you provoke the violence you're then defending against, you're not liable. No, it's nuts. But I think that what was also interesting and, and, you know, kind of to the way that in the book, what I'm saying is, let's think about our young people. Let, you know, Trayvon Martin would have been 27 uh, this year. So, I mean, I think we're talking about people, let's let them be a little bit older. Let's let them be a little bit younger, you know, but, but to be a generation, let's understand their trauma, but let's also understand how they survive, what is the art they make, what can we offer them? And so mm-hmm. I think that in 2013, right after that um, uh, acquittal, Oscar, the movie about Oscar Grant made by Ryan Coogler, Fruitvale Station. Oh, I love very that important movie. piece of art. Well, that was came out at the same time and literally in my own life with my own kids who were at the time, you know, 12 and 13, 13 and 14, something like that, two sons. We heard about George Zimmerman right as we came out of the movies of seeing Fruitvale mm-hmm. Station. So I think what was powerful about that work of art is that even though it built on another iconic filmed uh, race-based violence of how you know that young man was killed in the BART station, um, but the format of the movie is that it is a day in the life. Yeah. So we see Oscar Grant and you, know, you go through the whole movie knowing what's gonna happen, but you see him get up, snooze the alarm here's your your kid you know fussing with your girlfriend going to the store for your mother going to work doing the things that people do and I think that if you followed anybody for two hours over the course of one day that intimacy you know that that how do you know someone in their day-to-day movements made the heartbreak even more intense and very, very proximate and real. So that's what made me think, okay, here we are in this time where we're dealing with all this happening in real life, if you will, but maybe our music, our films, our art, our poetry has something to say to these young folks. Mm. Because the other thing that I wondered about is I I was reading the book and I was thinking about young Black people seeing this all the time, you know, on their feeds, on the news, on, yep. you know, everywhere. It, it made me think about the question is, did it reinforce what they knew? And as you say, the repetitiveness of it drilled it down in, a, in an even more painful way? Or did it make known what you and I knew it existed? Well, I mean, I guess I feel that yeah, we knew it existed, but I mean, what I didn't predict for this generation, which again, for me, it starts with my sons. It also includes, you know, having been a college professor for so many years, generations of young people who I've known and loved so deeply. And then with, you know, the generation in general, because I think one of the messages of the book is that we have to care about more than we all have to love these kids. We all have to take responsibility for these kids. Mm. We all have to listen to these kids. You know, everybody needs to be a parent or an auntie or an uncle uh, beyond their own beyond their own world. So, I wanted to know how, when you receive this message as a young person, how do you still find joy, self-expression? How do you not? How do you keep yourself safe? 
but not live in fear? Mm-hmm. How do you take in all of the, it, it, it is knowledge uh, that there is uh, this disproportionate violence out there awaiting you, but there's other knowledge that you need to have too. And that that knowledge needs to both keep them human and full and also collectively move the society to a better place because we got to solve this race problem. Yeah. And, and Elizabeth, do you think um, that um, it's accidental or progress that the, um, that the presence in our culture of Black art, Black music, Black theater has expanded. Do you think that was like, got pushed by this generation looking for a way to express itself? Or does it represent a kind of a progress that we now are, we, we now see much more of it? Well, I think, you know, I think it's always been there. And this, I know, I mean, one of the, you know, profundities of the Black experience is that, you know, Black people were brought to this country for the most part as chattel slaves, were classified as three-fifths human beings in the eyes of the law. So, I mean, I would argue that, you know, legal dehumanization and dehumanization in all other ways is not something that you just bounce out of. Yeah. Right. Especially if you act like history doesn't matter. Um, and yet from the very beginning of black people's presence in, in US culture, we have disproportionately created um, art music. that has so profoundly. I mean, if you think I mean, let's just just think about the blues and all that comes out of it. Yeah. All that is expressed in the blues, all of the ways that 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 sorrowful existence has been transformed all of the black well, appropriated well uh, appropriated <laughs> wouldn't be by the blues people themselves that's a, that's another no, i mean from the appropriated from the blues people um yes that too that too <laughs> but i mean i guess what i i think is I, I think that artistic expression has always been a way that we have metabolized mm-hmm. and expressed the complexity of our experience here um, so I do think what what I'm trying to do is, again, kind of what I've done for decades as an educator anyway, is to say, here, look, 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 look. And in the format of the book, with work by some of our greatest artists, Carrie James Marshall, Carrie Mae Weems, Lorna Simpson, Jennifer Packer, I could go on and on, reproduced really beautifully in the book. I wanted to say, here's a way of reading Mm-hmm. that I think can help you feel and learn a different way so that you can read text. It's a very kind of condensed poetic prose. And then you look at an image and maybe it's illustrative and maybe it's just alongside. Maybe it's in conversation. Maybe it makes you understand what you're reading differently. Maybe you just want to go back to the book and just look at the pictures. Um, but I want it to be, you know, not just here's the illustration, but rather you read with words and you read with images at the same time. Well, you know, one of the, I loved the way that worked and I read, I, I did it both ways. I enhanced my, the, the, the words by reflecting on the art. And then I went back and just looked at the art. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorites, 
I don't know if I'm going to say her name properly. Is Mary Sabandi? Sabandi, yeah. Mm -hmm. Boy, the fierceness of that painting is extra. So that was painted, I think, in 1970 and is titled The Rain. It, yes, and it's actually a um, a sculpture um, that, that I mean, it's a sculpture, a right? I knew that quality to it. Mary Sibande is a South African artist, and that character um, is a domestic worker, a South African domestic worker. And in the image, to describe it for those who are listening, um, it uh, alludes to because there's a whole conversation about monuments and memorials and how we tell the stories of who we are in public space. There's a rearing horse where you would normally expect to see if you were in the United States, a Confederate general right. on, top, on top of it. And here instead is this fierce, as you say, strong, beautiful, multicolored dresses um, uh, woman who is, has worked as a domestic, uh, who is, uh, we don't know what she's rising up against, yes. what she's charging into. Uh, but she is powerful and she supplants uh, the, the, the often oppressive image that celebrates uh, not only war, uh, but also um, lost war and enduring legacies of white supremacy. As in I mean, it is glorious. It is just a glorious sculpture in her blue, you know, cape or coat or dress. And the, you know, the, the horse is almost totally on its hind legs and she is marching, you know, it's fierce. And so I loved the sensation of that. No, I think so too. I'm glad no, 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 of the conversations I've had, we, I haven't talked about, about her yet and why I think it's interesting. She's the only South African artist represented, but the way that in that country as well, they too have grappled with and not altogether resolved the yeah. fundamentally corrosive national question of racism. Yeah, Elizabeth, I wanna go back to the other thing that I thought about, both your boys are in their 20s. And uh, there's, there's two things I wanted to um, talk about there. One is how does their perspective differ from yours, would you say? Because they are the Trayvon generation. Well, I, I, I do know that um, they have found and their friends, I mean, I've sh I shared it with them before publication. I shared it with them as I was writing it. Um, I talked with them a lot in the writing of the book. Um, and I know that they feel it is it is resonant, um, that it, it does name something they're struggling with, which is how to feel safe, how to metabolize the trauma of the threat, but how to also live their lives as young people, uh, how to be free. I mean, you know, really, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean not to be embittered, but to be smart about the world around you? They too are very, and for them, you know, I would say the, the primary um, form uh, uh, that they consume, they consume all kinds of culture, but music um, is the one that they, you know, like so many young people consume the most avidly. And so they've taught me a great deal in their listening to and analyzing of folks like Kendrick Lamar, uh, you know, who I talk about um, uh, the, the a video, video example of All Right, you know, where you just see all of the all of the aspiration, all of the danger, all of the 
naming of what's there and how might you, I think sometimes the use of fantasy uh, to imagine as in that last uh, chapter, there are black people in the future, you know, to imagine ourselves in uh, a different place, hopefully within all of our lifetimes. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. Sit back, relax, and let your inner Sherlock escape to the glamorous Roaring Twenties. You'll search for hidden clues to solve mystery after mystery across thousands of vivid scenes. And with new chapters each week, there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. June's Journey has tons of fun and unique features to keep you entertained. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. We'll even get the chance to play in the detective league to put your skills to the test. Help June relive some of her fondest memories with the new memoir feature. Piece together her past to complete gorgeous albums and unlock exclusive awards like Island Beautifications. And let your imagination run wild by decorating and structuring your island to your own taste. I was surprised how fun, addictive, colorful, full of surprises, and all-around entertaining the game was. And over the past week, I found myself forgetting about any other game on my phone. And even though I've only been playing for a short time, it seems there's a lot of extra challenges where you can earn great prizes. There's so many decorative items to jazz up your island however you'd like. So find your inner detective and download June's Journey today. It's available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. Well, you know, one of the things I was struck by, so I watched uh, the short films that you uh, referred to one uh, they're called until the quiet comes never catch yes. me and the you just mentioned all right and one of the thing I watched them a couple of times and one of the one of the um, emotions I had watching it was the freedom they show in so in one of them there's a young black boy and a young black girl and they're in caskets in a church yeah. at, at what is obviously the funeral and then in a fantastical way the boy and the girl I'm not I'm, I'm explaining this for our listeners get out of their caskets and are resurrected and dancing as the mourners mourn and in the other one um I think that was in until the quiet comes yeah you have a young man who's been killed, his blood, and he's a phenomenal dancer. And he then takes off. And so in both of them, there was a resurrection. Yes, yes. Right, there was a resurrection. And what what was the that message to you about using the fantastical for their resurrection and the dancing? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, we should just also call the names of those two incredible filmmakers, Khalil Joseph and Hiro Murai, um, who are real, real visionaries. And Hiro Murai is also a director on Donald Glover's Atlanta, which oh. is another thing that I, I, I talk about as a way of, of sort of saying, let's, what if we read Atlanta as not being about 
the Trayvon generation's, you know, kind of hipster cool, but rather about depression. Mm. You know, what if we looked at a lot of the work that some of these very, very smart, um, youngish African-American uh, people who are working on TV, Issa Rae, Insecure, you know, they are actually really dealing with depression in, right. in a way that I think is is very, very important. And so what is so heartbreaking about the two videos you mentioned and the resurrection is that two things. Number one is you gasp when you see it because it's yeah. the thing you never could have dreamed. Like what, you know, you could come back. I mean, don't we all wish that for the ones that we've lost, you could come back. But then when you see that the community is inured and can't experience that, you have to sit with the fact that it's not possible. So right. I think that, that they create two very strong parallel tracks of emotion. You know, one is that hopefulness and the other is the heartbreak. Um, yeah. But I also think just as um, a, a sort of um, move of an artist, I think allowing us to picture that which has seemed unimaginable is a quite remarkable thing for an artist to do. And in the so-called Afrofuturists, you know, there are a lot of, of, of Black artists who are working in that mode. I think that, that the work is very, very important to show us what we might not even have been able to imagine. Yeah, and the other thing that it it expressed to me, I would agree, my reaction was um, the, the way you're talking about it, but that in the midst of that deep, deep sadness was this exuberant joy. You know, and, and it, it, to me, it crystallized what you talk about in the book, that this alignment of the capacity of art to be expressive and healing. Well, and with both of those, so in the um, uh, in the after the 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 quiet, the, the dancer's name is Storyboard P, and he's actually he recently performed here in New York. He's a very um, and he, he it's a very LA specific uh, kind. I don't of think he has bones. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really quite extraordinary. It's, it's it's genius. I mean, I don't use that 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 word lightly, um, and I don't know the names of the kids who are um, in the other video, but they are noteworthy dancers. Oh, they were beautiful, um, and, and in a very stylized way that made me think, oh, is that a dance from that community, from LA, from that neighborhood, from, you know, um, you know what what the kids are doing when they are feeling free. Um, and so I think that in a beautiful way, it marks the space of how we want to feel and how we want yeah. our young people to feel, which, you know, as I write about, um, you know, how can this be? There are many ways that one measures the success of one's parenting, you know, always with, you know, huh, huh, you know, you got to like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, protect you them. We say Exactly. Also all of that. But, you know, that my children love to dance, that my children have close ties to friends who they love, that my children come together and celebrate, you know, that my children aren't locked up in their bedrooms. They're out in the world. Mm -hmm. um, that is something, you know, that is the power and exuberance of youth that we have to protect because they need it in order to be able to be whole people. Yeah. So speaking of parenting, um, my deepest condolences on the recent passing of your father, Clifford 
Alexander because his accomplishments in the Johnson and Carter administration were significant and impressive and the changes that he instigated as Secretary of the Army and the role that he played um, in civil rights. And I'm sure you have extraordinary stories about him, but the one that charmed and impressed me that was in the book is his free black man theory and being sure you had fuck you money. So, yes. and, and I'm gonna have you share with us what that was, but here's what it reminded me of. My parents are, are both Holocaust survivors mm. and um, my father saw wealthier people able in some isolated circumstances to bribe their way to a lesser labor camp. Mm. And so when we lived in this country, my father always, I was in grammar school, I had $200 of cash on me. Because <laughs> my father like imagined if the Nazis came to King Philip Junior High, <laughs> I would have $200. If he could have sewn diamonds in my head, he oh would my have. Goodness. So when this, the story you're gonna share with, with us slightly resonates with me. Wow. Well, I mean, first of all, just thank you very much for for your condolences. It's very, um, very fresh. Uh, but you know, he I'm sure a beautiful life, a beautiful life. And one of the things in the last three weeks since his passing that has um, just been a gift every single day is that, uh, you know, as as happens, the letters you hear from people. Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's, it sort of fits into what we're going to talk about from the book. I mean, the letters from just the letters are, and the stories are extraordinary. And, and, and someone wrote me yesterday who said when he was 10 years old, uh, that my father was his camp counselor at an ethical culture school camp. And that, uh, this person had a, uh, a cleft palate that was sewn back and was teased really, really brutally. And that my father came upon as a counselor, came upon someone teasing him and said, you stop it. You stop that. We never treat people that way ever. You never treat people that way because they're different. You don't do that in my site. You don't do that at this camp. And that everyone left him alone after that. This is a person 80 years old yeah. writing me saying it was the first time in my life that someone stood up for me. Wow. And the thing is, so, you know, you read about these big, public, beautiful, huge things that this man who made the army a more fair place for women and people of color, you know, because he thought of it as a workplace and said that it needed to be a fair workplace. This is the same person who, when he was 16 years old, said no bullies, yeah. you know, no bullies. So I think the whole gamut of, um, and then, you know, just to the intimate of like, just you know, the He's most dad. loving dad there, there could be. Um, and so, you know, the story that I tell, um, and, and so I, so I feel grateful actually, mm. uh, you know, even in the sorrow, grateful for a good life, grateful for the blessings to other grateful for his peaceful departure from this earth, because it yeah. was very, very peaceful. What a um, gift. And it's a, it is a, it is a real gift. Um, and, and, you know, and he's a gift for the rest of my life. And so, but his lessons were, we live in a racist society. We live in a sexist society because he was very much a feminist. 
and you need to be able to do what you have to do. And you need to understand that, you know, what it means to be free as a Black person, as a Black woman, uh, is that you can't accept the paradigms that say you're not as good as, you're not as smart as, you don't deserve to be here. You know, the paradigms that are still, again, when you look at our lack of representation in so many spaces of society, our lack of empowerment in so many spaces, well, does that mean we are lesser creatures? Of course not. So his thing was like, reject the paradigm. Don't hear the noise. Don't answer to the insult. And keep your FU money on you so that you can always, his thing was walk away from the man, walk mm -hmm. away from danger, walk away from the job even. Uh, because yeah. you cannot keep yourself in situations where body or spirit are in danger. And so I think that, you know, I mean, I love $200 when you were a little girl, I was going to say, you know, I think that that most of us were also raised with, at the time, a dime for a phone call. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but with my dad, too, it was like fistful of cash. Like you might have to get on a train. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you might have to like pay your rent in advance. Um, you know, but you've got to ready yourself and you've got to think that way because that's how you'll be able to be the best of yourself. Um, because yeah. you won't be climbing out from under, you know, the forces of ill. Yeah, it, it, Elizabeth, you know, the thing it makes me think about, I recently interviewed Zane Asher and she's an international anchor with CNN and mm -hmm. her uh, family was from Nigeria, grew up in, her father died early in a horrible car accident back in Nigeria with one of her brothers. And her mother, who had a pharmacy and was like fierce, just fierce, did, you know, as so many single Black women do, they're towers of strength. But one of the things among many that she credits her mother with is her mother had pictures of accomplished black people all over the house mm -hmm. because she wanted her daughter, to your point, to understand her worth, that there were black people had superior accomplished qualities for her not to be feel denigrated or the need to be subservient because she was a black Nigerian girl in London. Well, you know, I, I, that's how I, I think about, um, again, teaching and the work of, of the book is that I want people to see all of these right. beautiful visions and examples, but um, it's not just for black people because I think that, you know, one of the things I learned from so many years of teaching and all of the places where I taught um, were, you know, mixed in every kind of way um, is that for non-black people never to have been exposed to, because I teach African-American, you know, culture, the amazing literature, art, music, accomplishments of people of color. What does it mean if you've never been taught yeah. or supervised by anybody but a white person? Yeah. I mean, you know, for us to really be a healthy, functioning, multicultural democracy, uh, for us to really be able to, to resource everyone's talent so that we can 
be as as good as we can be because I think that like the still unfinished experiment of America does have power and beauty in it. I mean, I love living in a country that has the whole world in it. I can't mm-hmm. imagine anything greater uh, than 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 that. But it, it it it's not working right now because the multiplicity of who we all are and the mutual respect uh, is is not where it needs to be. Yeah, and I do think that that's I do think that's a changing in subtle ways where you know non blacks are increasingly exposed and understanding of the breadth and depth of talent that exists outside the white world. Um, But one thing I I don't want to forget is one of the people that charmed me also in this book, who I really want to know more about is your father's mother, um, who was savvy enough to demand that he memorize the badge numbers of any policeman who might harass him as one did when your father was eight. Did you know her, Elizabeth? I knew her just, she died when I was five years old. So mm. I, I remember her, but I knew her in my father's stories. My father was an only child. Both my parents were actually. Um, and so their proximity to their parents was, you know, I, I got right. to, to hear a whole lot. And, you know, I mean, I think it is amazing to be the kind of mom who says like, don't come back here without their badge numbers. Yeah. You know, like use your mind. But In also, those days. But think, but think also about the mom who lets her child go play knowing, mm. knowing that harm could befall him. Knowing that using his mind and getting, you know, and the message that he... He passed on to my brother and me that he passed on to my kids that we passed on to the kids was get yourself home safe, get yourself out of mm-hmm. the situation. So even if someone is mistreating you or insulting you or, you know, doing something unjustly, which it would always be unjust because they were all good kids. Uh, the important thing is you got to get home safe. And then as a team, we will help you. Uh, figure out how to handle it. And so for my grandmother, it's like, we got to have that badge number. I mean, she sounded fierce in it. I I think I recall that she got the newspaper, one of the newspapers to not refer, if they were going to refer to a criminal as black, that they should refer to a criminal as white as well. Exactly. And most importantly, alleged criminal, because the way, you know, that 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 so often criminality is painted onto uh, uh, black people. And so this would have been New York in the 1940s. And yes, she did that. The the other uh, uh, that I want to make the other um, film that you mentioned in in the book that I want to make sure that our listeners uh, know about is the Coonhart documentary called King in the Wilderness, which is one hour and 51 minutes and is, it's an extraordinary piece of art. It, it enhanced my understanding in such a deep way. I got to see your father speak. He's, he is in the, in the um, film. So 
it, you know, there were lots of pieces there that that I found myself so happy to learn about, Elizabeth. I really want to thank you. And I hope when people read the book, um, they do the same, that they take the time to really look at the art and explore it. One other, th a couple of other things I want to make sure we get to. I found myself surprised, maybe even shocked, and how obvious and repetitive the cycle of racial progress followed by backlash was. And the, the, the obvious one that you talk about is many of us might have thought the Confederate monuments, um, which you describe as didactic violence, I love that term, were put up shortly after the Civil War as a way to like, you know, pretend that they were really victorious, but in fact, that's hardly the case. It, it, share with us when these Confederate monuments have, have either been created or dedicated or rededicated. Well, um, yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. I mean, first of all, the thing to understand about the Confederate monuments, what do they stand for? The lost cause, uh, you know, who won the Civil War? We know who won the Civil War. <laughs> and so the only way to understand um, the fact that these were put up in the decades and decades and decades and decades following the Civil War, well up through uh, the, the 20th century, often in response to moments of racial progress, is that they were a way of continuing to assert white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Robert E. Lee, for all of the hundreds of Robert E. Lees and hundreds of Stonewall Jacksons and, you know, school names, army-based names, for goodness sakes, people who failed at the army <laughs> have army bases named for them. They uh, are represented in places where they never even were, where the Civil War wasn't even fought. So we have to understand them as being markers that say, some people are superior and some people are inferior, which is why they really are so dangerous. Um, I've been really interested in this, you know, dovetails with some of my work at the Mellon Foundation on something called the Monuments Project um, and looking at something like, you know, Robert E. Lee uh, windows in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. that were put up in, into the early 1960s. And yeah. they were put up in the 1950s as Brown v. Board was making its way through the courts. What was now, even the reasoning, Elizabeth? What, what was it? It was the same. Washington D.C. was a, a you know a, 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 a resistant, segregated um, place, and the National Cathedral was the seat of white power. Um, that you know, Washington's white elite. That was the. It was a segregated city. When my family moved there from New York in 1963. It was a de facto segregated city. So these, and what's really interesting is that is that then decades later at the National Cathedral, they made their own choice in that community to re remove those stained glass windows because they said they are an impediment to worship. They did the self-reflection to say, wait wow. a second, why are these here? What did we do? You know, we, 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 we wanna be a different community. That doesn't belong. That's impressive. It's very impressive. I mean, it's very impressive. It, it, it is a reckoning with one's own history that I'm sure also, by the way, they did it, but they didn't do it seamlessly. They went through a process, process. in their community. So um, I think that's what we 
we need to see more and, and more of. You know, I was in college, I started college in 1967 in Washington. Mm -hmm. And I was very aware. And I was there when Martin Luther King was killed. Mm. When, you know, our dorm was on 19th and F. So the mm -hmm. fires on 14th Street and all of that yes. were not that far. And there was a curfew and tanks were down the street. I was a, a, a child in D.C. at the time, and I absolutely remember the same thing. And interestingly, as we're speaking of my father, working on civil rights work with uh, John uh, with Johnson at the time, working on Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, and also was the liaison who brought Dr. King and others to the White House. President Johnson sent my father to be part of the party to go to Memphis when that happened. Really? And so I remember being a little girl um, with the tanks and the fire and the city burning uh, and dad not home. And it was, it was very, very frightening. Yeah. It was scary. Elizabeth, I can't, I can't help, but I know this is a big question and your book starts the conversation, but where will change come from? I know that, you know, I've heard you say, I've heard others say, you know, white people made this problem. Don't ask blacks to be fixing the problem. Where do you think change will come from? Well, um, to begin with, to the question of racism, I will repeat what you said that I wrote. Black people didn't make this problem. White people made this problem. White people got to fix this problem. So I, I'll, I'll repeat that. That doesn't mean that that's the only thing yeah. that we need to be a flourishing society. But I think, you know, when you look at the continual looking to Black people articulate the race problem, how would you solve the race problem? What are you going to do with the race problem? We have exhausted ourselves. Uh, I mean, luckily, yeah. I find, you know, Black people and Black history and Black culture to be just about the most interesting things in the world. So I'm not bored. <laughs> but right. I, I think, you know, you do what you can do with the power you have. Um, but ultimately, you know, if you are in a position where you can hire people, who do you hire? If you're in a position where you can make a community in any kind of way. I mean, I, you know, I always say, you know, what is your home? What is your block? What is your neighborhood? What is your workplace? What is your recreation place? What is your worship place? You know, all of the different ways that all of us have the power to think about who's at the table with us. Little, little ways too. You know, I think about what our, my husband and I moved from the shoreline into New Haven. Uh -huh. um, about um, 10 years ago. And, and our son, Edward, went to school in New Haven, K through 12. Mm -hmm. And it's such a different experience, a pleasure, a pleasure that, you know, you're in the neighborhood, you're walking, you're experiencing things in an utterly, it's just such a different way of living. Yes, well, you know, you're talking about my my my, my favorite town. Yes, my favorite town and always my favorite town. Um, so, you know, I, I think that also if we don't operate with a belief that there is a scarcity model, you know, we're seeing a, a lot right now of, you know, the kind of, oh, and this is old stuff too, you know, oh, so-and-so took, took my job. That was my job, you know, well, I, I don't know, like, well, 
is any job, I don't feel like my job is owed to me. I, you know? right. <laughs> um, and what does, again, what does it mean? Don't we want to live our lives around people who feel treated fairly and empowered mm. so that we can hear each other's point of view and, you know, kind of eat each other's food? You know, I mean, I, I mean that literally, but more, I mean, it is a larger metaphor of cultural exchange and learning from each other and you know the kind of arrogance I mean I think that uh, you know a problem in U.S. society and we see this you know most people don't speak another language uh you know the way in which um American imperialism has centered and empowered in a way that is both mythical because it doesn't actually really describe the way that all people are able to live here but also has left us incurious to others and to each other. Yeah, yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. How do you, how do we create a real and safe conversations about racism? Because what what I see is I'm on any number of nonprofit boards that are extremely diverse in terms of gender, race, age. And I worry about the real conversations not taking place. I worry about what I call a spree de stairs, you know, the the hard conversations where I'm willing. I'm willing to be accused of not seeing something clearly or fully. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say what I think other people, but I worry that the really hard conversations that will move, move change forward aren't happening in as full-throated and safe a way as they can. Do you see that happening or do you have thoughts on how to make sure that happens? Yeah, well, I think a couple of things. I mean, one of the beautiful things that I know from decades of teaching, the hard work of race to mixed classrooms is that in the 13 weeks of the semester, we go through it. We make mm. a community, We people come from very different places uh, very different sets of experiences, and we set rules for respectful engagement, um, and we move through it. So, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's not impossible. It can be done. And I think that also, um, you know, in the conversation that is happening now about white fragility, I'm putting that in quotation marks. Yeah. I know this is, is, is a podcast. <laughs> um, I think that, that, that one of the things we need to remember is, you know, I, I saw some little cartoon that said, um, if kids, you know, if white kids can't learn about critical race theory, what about the kids of color who are living through, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, or like, you know, who, who have to hear about slavery. You, you right. know? In, in other words, um, there's no escaping history. It, it, it's real. And so I think that there has been a little bit too much, there's an imbalance in the safety conversation uh, where, you know, I mean, look, some conversations are hard. Yeah, period. I, I am I am more worried about sustained harm 
not only to uh, people, but to all of us, if we continue to let these hateful myths live. So I just kind of feel like everybody, you know, there just needs to be a toughening Everybody's got to calm down. (laughs) Well, but also I think we need to remember who's really being like, how hurt are you if you have a safe and lovely life and you have one hard conversation about race? Yeah. Yeah, No tears tears from me. Yeah. And, and so you're now the president of the Mellon Foundation. This is this is a fantastic spot to be in. Um, how has its mission changed or been carried out under your leadership? Well, so we're um, a little over 50 years old. And what we've always done and what we still do is we're the nation's largest funder in arts and culture. We give to the humanities and the humanities in higher education. And we give to knowledge, libraries, archives, so forth. And I've added an area called humanities in place, which is more like in public space that's not higher ed space. How do we learn the humanities? Like you have the monuments project. We have the monuments project or in, you know, teaching spaces like the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, for example, spaces like that where anybody can go that and, and learn as opposed to people who come into university to learn, but can learn deeply and, and not in a, in a superficial way. So, I mean, imagine the chance to, you know, have Crazy. resource these things. I mean, and, and given my whole life, kind of nothing could be better or more exciting. But what I have done from the moment I came in, even when they approached me for the position is to say, all of our giving will be done through a social justice lens because mm-hmm. I wanted us to be purposeful and directional. I wanted us to be thinking about questions of access. I wanted us to be thinking about which stories haven't been told, which stories have been overtold. I wanted us to think about institutions that have been over-resourced and institutions that can't even become institutions because they're under-resourced. Because I do think that those kinds of equity principles in philanthropy are really, really important. And to have a self-awareness of that the money needs to be given with, not like everybody gets a dollar, but with a mindfulness about what are we trying to lift up and move forward in our society? And, and who can we give a chance who hasn't had a chance? Yeah, um, you know, it was, it was I, had, uh, I had the deep pleasure of getting to know Lonnie Bunch. And oh, he's such he, a great person. Oh my goodness. And he was in New Haven for his book about building the African-American Museum, which I think yes. is building a museum under Obama, Bush and Trump. Mm-hmm. But um, he took a, 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 a few of us on a tour of the museum of the African-American Museum in DC. And I think of that as the most extraordinary experience to understand, I mean, both the physical structure that mimics, you know, starting in the basement of that museum and then going up to the light is, I just think it's one of the most extraordinary museums I've been in anywhere in the world. It really, really is. And I've um, both, I was at the Ford Foundation before Mellon and uh, at both institutions, we were major, major funders who helped it exist. So I've brought many groups of people there over the years, including um, international guests. And it really made me so proud yeah. um, to hear them say, this is 
far and away the most interesting thing that we've seen on on our visits here and i think that the book i mean the the museum actually physically makes the argument that my book makes which is you sort of start out of the darkness of this history and this trauma yeah. but what's on the top besides light is culture yeah is culture i mean in right. that extraordinary top level where it's including like, what's that car at the top um, oh, what is that car? Is it Chuck Berry's car? Chuck Berry's car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's but, you know, movie. you're almost physically ill in the basement when you see the little iron um, uh, chain or clasp that they used for babies that were brought over as slaves. I mean, you just... It, and you're in the dark and you're in the basement and you viscerally experience, not experience, that's absurd. Ex yeah. Have a, like a, a minutiae of understanding of the horror of it. And that's what, you know, that's what I want art to do. I want art to yes. make me feel those things. We agree. <laughs> uh, so Elizabeth, um, your last question is this, what is your hope for the next stage of what progress might look like? Well, um, and you know, I think, I mean, I can read this, this portion in the book that we marked because in some ways that kind of lays it out. Answers like. the question. Yeah. Well, then we'll let you do that, Elizabeth. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, this is how the book concludes. And I, you know, I always think like, I said it even better in the book. <laughs> um, artists make radical solutions all day long. Soup from a stone, beauty from thin air. We see and try and discard and see again. We vision, we invent, we do it in the dark. We bring it into community. Artists continue to generate in a dangerous world that is nonetheless overflowing with life force and power. Creativity making and imagining animate black self-determination with that which only culture can provide. And people make movements and history with the force of creativity. The truly heroic drama of black struggle is seen in the vivid figurative language of visionary leadership, the tableau of fierce and proud resistance, the blazing beauty of people who survive indignities that might seem unbearable, the style and innovation with which Black people keep on stepping, offering countless examples to remind us of what has been overcome, as well as to spark possibility for envisioning the new. We Black people were brought to this soil in the category of property. In the eyes of the law, we were three-fifths human. Out of this status, we became the seers who have continuously articulated the problem the hope and the possibility of America. We have expressed the core of what it is to be human and to aspire to better enact that humanity. I believe we have been able to do this because we have accessed near ancestral knowledge and wisdom for our enslaved progenitors are within reach of memory and lore still in our families, as well as the energy, courage, and new sight of the young people who so often catalyze our movements. There is no progress without generations working together. And there is no North Star without vigorous creativity to imagine it for us and mark where it lights the way. Mm. Amen.
Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful conversation. Well, Elizabeth, I I um, I want to thank you on so many levels. I mean, I've read everything that you have published and I reread it and I'm a bookseller, so I get to recommend it to gazillions of people. And your new book, uh, The Trayvon Generation, I think has all the ingredients to instigate conversations among people to help people think more broadly and to understand that art is an element of the conversation. I think that, I mean, I was so struck by the artwork reflected, either the poetry or the sculptures or the, um, you know, I went to listen to the music that you talked about. I like re-listened to John Coltrane's. Oh, beautiful. Uh, you know, not not that I don't listen to it a lot, but I re-listened to it. I looked at the poem and I hope people I hope people will do that because that's how we keep on learning. Right. That's just how we keep on truck and keep on learning. That's right. That's right. That's what we got to do. All right. Well, Elizabeth, I hope I get to see you soon. And thank you so much. And uh, I'll continue to be your biggest fan and, and, and watch the work that you do. Thank you so much, Roxanne. Thank you. Be well. You too. And are, are we finished taping now? Um, yes. You know, the last time I saw you um, was at the British. Um, yeah. No, it was at the at, Yale at- Museum of Art when exactly when when I debuted my my memoir yeah so that was that was nine years ago and my beautiful husband and I our favorite date used to be to go to the movies across the street from the bookstore yeah and we would you know why get there early so we could go to the bookstore yeah and thank you for that that was yeah such you a know, Elizabeth, what be. I remember from that night among many things were your students yeah uh you know listening to your students talk to you was a pretty powerful experience because I was standing right next to you as books were being signed mm-hmm. and so I got to hear all the kids thank you speak to you yeah that is the last time we saw each. I yeah. can't believe I I catch up about you whenever I see Michael Kaplan because he's a friend. Oh, (laughs) okay. Where do you live in New Haven now? We're on the corner of Lawrence and Whitney. There was a building that used to be the New Haven Medical Society right by the fire station. Yes, yes, yes. So that a developer turned that into condos and our apartment was the auditorium for the New Haven Medical Society. So nice. You get to New Haven? I do. Well, you know, the it's so funny. As we speak, literally, my baby is moving out of Orange Street. Um, so um oh, wow. Both of the kids went to Yale. One graduated two years ago. I mean, they were pandemic babies in their last times. The other one was working at Art Space um on Orange. Yeah, on Orange. And is now uh working in, in a museum in the city. So he's as we speak, literally. I'm going to have to check like on the way to Bushwick (laughs) where they all go. Yeah. Right. And actually Michael gave him a farewell dinner, uh, Michael and Susan, uh, a couple of nights because Michael and Susan, well, I mean, so much to say about them, but they have um, totally been in loco parentis 
for my kids. Yeah, uh, yeah. So well, I do, Michael, I, they're just the they're just the most wonderful people. I know Michael better than Susan, but mm -hmm. they're just you just want to be in their space. It's really true. It's really, really true. So I do get, you know, I get back and forth because, you know, I have friends and I, you know, I'm so when I can, I do. I'm, I will, New Haven will be mine forever. We've been talking with Elizabeth Alexander, uh, the author of The Trayvon Generation. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.